Welcome to Dr. Podcast. We appreciate you guys being here. As I keep saying, we're just so lucky to have great guests and we just continue with the hit parade. Uh, Gary Marcus is with us today. Dr. Gary Marcus is a cognitive psychologist. He's a cognitive scientist, author, serial entrepreneur. He is a human language development, cognitive neuroscience uh, researcher. He is an emeritus professor of psychology and neuroscience at NYU. Five books, The Birth of the Mind, Guitar Zero, The Algebraic Mind, and I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, Cluj, which is the one where I think I fell in love with Gary Marcus. I think that's where that happened to me. You could uh, follow his substack, garymarcus.substack.com. He is uh, asking us, all you listeners, to swing by his new podcast, Humans versus Machines, essentially uh, about AI. We're going to talk about some of this. Uh, I see it at uh, apple.com. I imagine, uh, Gary, it's wherever you get your podcast. Is that accurate? Exactly so. Fair enough. Check it out, everyone. Please do check out that podcast. You'll get a little taste of it today. So I've never been more in need of cognitive scientists than this present historical moment. Uh, can you can you understand why I would say that? I mean, I guess there's a lot of reasons we might need cognitive scientists now, ranging from we might want to build AI that is more informed by, let's say, a human perspective, mm-hmm. to thinking about how cognitive scientists could help us with a deluge of misinformation for which AI will be partly responsible. Mm. Um, we might think about the pathology of certain presidential candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, and our response to them. And, and our, and our, response our to them. Yeah. And, and I have never seen anything like COVID. That was a astonishing experience for me. All the different cognitive distortions that almost everybody maintained at whatever tribe they were in. Uh, they they used a lot cognitive- of exercise, a lot of examples of motivated reasoning and confirmation bias and reasoning from conclu- reasoning from conclusion. Uh, it just it was just uh, on full display, and yet there seemed to have been no acknowledgement of that. Did you notice that? I, I like I, I few people would talk about it here and there, but for the most part. It was just, no, my team is right. You're wrong, period. It was a lot of my team is right. Your team is wrong. Um, And I mean, there still is. I think the fallout is we can't even have conversations about it right now. It's such a hot button topic. And I don't know that you and I agree on on all details there, but um, it, it was such a hot button topic and remains such a hot button topic that there's not that much rational discourse on any of it, really. It just It's hard to even talk. Where, where do you imagine we disagree? Because I'll be surprised at this much. Well, I think I remember you early on uh, took a position, if I remember correctly, that, that it was um, closer to a cold. And, and I thought, you know, we no, really I categorically did not, though. I, the can't social rem- media, I, can't reconstruct- I categorically did not. But the social media world who, who was saying what I said, they took that position. Uh, I said nothing too, of the I kind. I can't quite remember the details. Well, so what I, I said, well, it, it, you can't because none of it got out in the out into the 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 biosphere. It, it was it was all edited, taken. It was it was mm-hmm. out of context. I was very concerned about alarmed. I was alarmed about the panic that the press was inducing. That's what I was. I knew that would do untoward harm. I knew, and I didn't feel that these people, like the New York Times editorial board, even had any. They should not be in the conversation with the medical community, the public health community. They should listen to the input. And I just kept saying, listen to the CDC, listen to Dr. Fauci, 
He's been my North Star my whole career. I was very involved in the AIDS epidemic, and he was wonderful during that. Please listen to him. Stop it. And what I did say was, you know, we just went through a pandemic 10 years ago that killed 300,000 people, and you don't even know that happened. So we kind of taper your, your emotions relative to that fact. This is going to be bad, but just listen to Fauci, listen to CDC, and they'll get us through it. That's I what it, I, I it, dared to say that. <laughs> in general, I think the biggest issue is that science didn't have enough voice in what was going on. Oh, my God. He had all kinds of people who are not really qualified, like who didn't understand what an exponential is, you know, trying to make their own projections, you know, on, on their spreadsheets and don't understand the math and like it was too many people. The other thing is there was a phrase that, that came popular, I think, in that era, which is I did my own research. And oh. I think it's actually great that people yeah. do their own research, but you need training to do mm-hmm. research correctly, to, to think critically and to, to reason critically. If, if you don't, then you fall exactly into those biases we were talking about a minute ago, where yep. everybody winds up with confirmation bias, motivated reasoning and so forth. So they everybody w- walks into it saying, I must be right. A good researcher actually walks in and says, where could I be wrong? Let me yes. figure that out. Yes, and, absolutely. And, you know, you need scientific training to do that. Some people may do it intuitively, but most people don't. And even scientists can fall prey to these errors. So it, it's really important if you're a professional scientist to say every day when you wake up, I'm a scientist, but I'm also a human being and I might screw up and, and to like think through like, where am I as a scientist invested in my own beliefs? Where might I make mistakes? And most of us aren't trained to do that. Yeah. And, and I also noticed something which I never was aware of before that, that these, this fundamental optimism versus pessimism bias became hugely apparent in people. Yeah. It was all a catastrophe. It was all nothing. And, and these biases were, were affecting everything and fundamental attribution error. Everybody that had a different opinion was an evil person, a bad person. Yeah. And we're seeing that in AI right now, and it's really pernicious and, and may cause the world great harm. So um, you know, one of the things that's happening <clears throat> kind of on it's in sort of inside baseball, but it's going to affect everybody mm. is that the AI community is kind of divided right now between, well, some people <laughs> who think there's no risk at all, who I think are just wrong. Um, and then, but aside from those people, there are people that are kind of emphasizing what we might call short-term and long-term risk. So there are short-term risks around AI, like these tools will generate misinformation, they're biased, they may lead to a lot of cybercrime. And then there's long-term, like could these AI systems in some scenario that <laughs> sounds like science fiction, but may or may not be real, um, you know, cause extinction of the whole species and so forth. And so the people looking at these long-term risks have started calling themselves AI safety people. And the people looking at the short-term risks are calling themselves AI ethics people, and they hate each other. And- each, each call each other a bad person. Well, I mean, some of them call the others eugenicists. I mean, they're like not even light about it. They're as um, polarizing as you could be in their discourse. And the reality is we actually have both kinds of problems. We have the short term and the long term. The only analogy I can think of is would be like if I worked on car accidents and you worked on cancer, I'd be like car accidents are here. They're right yeah. now. People yeah. won't die for cancer for years. And if I worked on cancer, I'd say, but many more people die of cancer. Who cares about your car accidents? Only 30,000 people. And that's idiotic. And in fact, there are common themes that everybody should care about. How do you get the systems to do what you actually want them to do? But there's, there's that internal bifurcation that you're talking about. And here it could really matter for the world because then you know Congress sits there and they're like, well, what should we do about AI? Well, we have these two communities of experts calling each other idiots. Maybe we shouldn't do anything. <laughs> oh, That's boy. not what we want either. 
Well, let, let's get to that. I, I want to get more into what you just described there for us, but I want to just quick uh, do a sidebar on the attribution error. I feel like that's gotten that bias has gotten much worse, and and I and, it, and I've only been aware of it being much worse since Trump. Like everybody, anyone who supports him is a bad person. Anyone doesn't is a hero, and it just it just it's pervaded everything. Was it going on before that, or is there any evidence that this has gotten worse? I mean, in this I was worried about polarization when I wrote Kluge in two thousand eight, um, <clears throat> which is I think when we first met. I did an yep. interview, I think, in, in yeah. Uh, I love that book in your studio. Um, so, I mean, it's always been a problem, but I, I do think social media has made these kinds of problems a lot worse. I think it makes it much easier for people to isolate themselves from, from, you know, intelligent differing opinions. Mm. Um, and so that demonization happens I mean, the original fundamental attribution error, if I remember correctly, was more like, if you do something well, I say you're just lucky. And if I do it, it's like, it's all me. Yeah, um, and yeah. so, you know, we're kind of tr- treating the other in a way that's different from ourselves. And I think you're using it in a broader sense that is quite right, that, that we are very quick to have this kind of us versus them um, bias. And it's not These healthy. Days. Yeah, I, I, and I it is don't... worse. I, yeah, I'm not, I, I wondered if it was something to do with, I, 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 you know, sort of the fourth turning type thing where something generational is going on here where we're more prone to these things or just whatever the circ again, this, that may be an attribution area in itself. There may be, it may just be the historical circumstance that has brought this stuff out. Hard I don't know say. if I'm supposed to blurb other people's books when I'm doing an interview, but let me blurb. Blurb um, uh, wasn't the right word, but you know what I mean. Um, Tim Urban has a new book. Um, he's known as Wait, but Wait, but Why? I can't remember the title of the book, mm. um, but he's really thinking about these questions of how we've gotten <laughs> more polarized over the last decade. Does he have, other than social media, any theory? Is there something fundamentally going on? I'm not. I, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Okay, I'll have um, to read it. I'll, yeah. I'll go talk to myself. Um, uh, and by the way, I did not mention, I don't think your um, Twitter handle, which is at Gary Marcus, you can find him there. Speaking of that. Uh, so let's go back to what you were saying about AI and more human like. I, I remember hearing conversations about AI before there were usable versions, right? Before it came into the sort of public consciousness so so prominently. Maybe eight, 10 years ago, there was a a school of thought that it could never be achieved because there was no way to create a human-like sort of, uh, we're not, I'm going to, I'm going to read a quote that I don't know if it came from you. It's Bertram Russell's, Bertram Russell's quote. Uh, It has been said that man is a rational animal. All my life I've been searching for evidence would, which could support this. In other I words, quoted Russell saying that, I think. Okay. Includes, yeah. Okay. I love that quote, um, which is sort of to the point, uh, AI is kind of a purely digital linear, even if it's a neural network based thing, it's not embedded in a body and it's not embedded in a social system. <laughs> is that the part that's missing or are they going to be able to solve that one day? And there's something else that you tilt at as the, the source issue. Well, I mean, AI might get a lot better than it is right now. I, th- I think we're in a particular moment in time and in 20 years from now or 40 years from now, we'll look back at 2023 AI and say, 
yeah, that was like the early cell phones that were the size of a car, you know, like, yeah. or the size of a briefcase in a car. Um, people will think it's pretty primitive and, and they'll note in particular that 2023 AI did not have a good sense of the world. Some of that's about not having a embodied physicality as you're talking about. Some of it's just a technical thing that the AI that we use now <laughs> is basically a version of autocomplete. It's basically just learning statistics of how words um, follow in sequence. And it turns out that that's a good proxy for many things. It's not a perfect proxy for hardly anything. And so you predicted that as a language psychologist. I mean, as a language psychologist, it was always clear to me that these systems would hallucinate that they would not be reliable. Uh, I was pointing that out in my 2001 book, uh, the algebraic, but that that autocomplete would be the sufficient, sufficient source to create a language AI. Um, well, I mean, part of me thinks it still isn't sufficient. It's just kind of fooling a lot of people. So, mm-hmm. you know, there were, there were similar related things even in the 90s. So th- there was something called latent semantic analysis. And it had this cool demonstration, but I think people never thought about it carefully enough that in some ways presages what's going on now. So you could type in or, or see, feed in a lot of data and then <clears throat> ask it to draw a map based on the vectors that represented the words, the sets of numbers that represent the words. And it would draw a map of the United States that looked kind of half decent. People were wowed by this. But if you looked at it carefully, it wasn't really that accurate. And you'd get confused. Like it would think New York and LA are closer together than they actually are because um, lots of people fly back and forth between New York Mm -hmm. and LA. Lots of celebrities live in both places and, and so forth. And so you had a proxy, something that kind of approximated what you want was a geography coming from the sentences, but didn't really capture it. And that's actually what we're seeing right now is you have a proxy for any number of things. Like these systems can talk about almost anything you want, but they never do it reliably. Mm. So they have this problem we call the hallucination problem. And, you know, as a psychiatrist, you might, might not appreciate the term because um, it really is a little bit different from what people do, but this is just what it's called in the field, <clears throat> which is where these systems make things up. So for example, one system made up the sentence that said on March 18th of 2018, Elon Musk was involved in a fatal car collision. And of course, Elon Musk is still here and a reasoning system would be very aware, well aware that he's here. There's more evidence that Elon Musk is alive than anybody because he tweets every single day. So we know he's still alive. Mm-hmm. A good reasoning system should be able to take that into account. But the system just makes it up because the statistics are that words like Elon and Musk and car crash co-occur a bunch because he owns a company that has cars that are sometimes involved in car crashes. So we understand the relation between like being the CEO of a company that builds a car that is involved in a car crash, as opposed to being a CEO who is actually in the car crash mm-hmm. himself. And mm-hmm. these systems still are not sophisticated enough to understand that, which I foresaw a long time ago. And I would say um, in that sense, they're still not very intelligent. And we could ask what would it be like or when, or, you know, could we get there? I think the answer is yes, we could get there, but we're very focused right now on a technology that is not really all that intelligent, but because the words we have in these databases reflect the world to some extent, they're often kind of sort of generally correct. Mm-hmm. I'll give you one, one parallel. Just for full disclosure, I'm an internist worked in a psychiatric hospital for many, many years. So, um, so, um, the example I was going to give you is with driverless cars. Like they appear as if they understand driving, right? If you're in one for an hour, you think they do, but they don't really understand what driving is, which is like avoiding other objects, not running into things. And yeah. an example, 
example of that is um, Tesla was recently summoned at an airplane trade show and it ran directly into a jet. So summoning is like you come from your parking space over here and it ran straight into a jet. It doesn't really understand that driving consists of, among other things, don't run into large objects. Mm-hmm. Um, it just has a data set. The airplane wasn't in the data set, so it couldn't generalize. It couldn't abstract the concept um, of driving these current systems are really very bound by the specifics of their experience in their data sets and don't abstract in the ways that humans do. Shopify is the no excuses business partner. Sell without code or design. Just bring the best ideas and Shopify will help you open. Makes it easy for you to show exactly what you want the way you want. Customize your online store. And once you start selling, Shopify makes getting paid simple by instantly accepting every type of payment. Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Thanks to its endless list of integrations and third-party apps, marketing made simple. Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools. Running a growing business means getting the insights you need wherever you are. Shopify's single dashboard can help you manage order shipping payments from anywhere. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. They have award-winning help there to help support your success every step of the way. You can sign up now. They're this confident for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Drew, all lowercase. That is $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Drew. Go to shopify.com slash Drew to take your business to the next level today. One more time, S-H-O-P-I-F-Y, shopify.com slash Drew. So we have to be really, really careful with language so we understand exactly what we're talking about because you used two words that I, I want to kind of drill on a little bit. One was to abstract and the other was to understand. And those are very different words. Understand to me as a as a connotation or as an intonation of consciousness, right? Somebody has to do the understanding. And we are a long way from that while the abstracting is a processing phenomenon, right? It's, it's I mean, you can abstract data no or are they both the, do they overlap in some way uh, they, they do overlap um but they're not identical um i don't think you need consciousness for understanding although it's an interesting question i would accept as a lower bar and these are terms you know you have to define them but i would say yes, yes. that a system understands things if it builds a mental model of the world that you can then Ooh, ask questions of. Mental model now. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there in a second. Who's so, mental model? So somebody's mental model. Somebody's mental model. Maybe not a perfect one, but you should be able to ask a question. For example, you should be able to say, "Is Elon Musk alive?" and get a reasonable answer. And um, you should be able to, if you feed, let's say, a short story into the system, you should be able to say who's the main character, who did what to whom, um, what were their motivations, and so forth. You have we some, can't do that now. It's very hit or miss. It'll work yeah. some of the time. The more yeah. obscure your story is, the less that it follows the conventions, the more likely it will have trouble. It right. won't be able to do that in a fully abstract way. Whereas, like any teenager can go to any Hollywood movie and understand basically what's happening, and you know, at the moment of the plot twist, like why is that interesting? We we don't have software that can really do that. So I like the way we take the lowest function of the human as the teenager, and so well, it's, it's a sort of you know ordinarily mostly developed human mind, yeah. not fully developed. You know, I mean, you don't want your standard to be like what a two-year-old is because they don't have yeah. full exposure to the data and so forth. Um, and of course, teenagers have their problems and we can mm-hmm. talk about that. Um, but you, 
I wouldn't want to call an AI system an understanding system unless when you fed something in, it could reliably answer questions, you know, at least as well as a candidate or something like that. And so do, does that mean that the systems that we're using, these language systems are, we need something wholly separate Then people are working on that or needs a revision of this or what, what, what's I your I think position? we're barking up the wrong tree. Yeah. Um, or to mix is my somebody metaphor. is somebody else looking elsewhere a different tree not not so much so so you know mm-hmm. the old joke right the the drunk is going around in circles looking for their keys the police officer says why are you going around the circles and they say well that's where the street light is yeah. basically right now yeah. we have a super powerful street light and yeah. there's some stuff under that light but the real answer to general intelligence that can abstract have have real comprehension is probably somewhere else but the street lights are so powerful and there's so much economic force behind right that's what it seems like to me that's all anybody's really looking at it's like 97 percent of the research dollars and then it makes it hard for the people with the three percent of the research dollars because if you have like a million dollars and you're competing on some benchmark with someone who has a billion dollars this is just hard and so isn't isn't, to that point isn't google doing more interesting things than just the language or is it still all derivative of language i mean well of language models i I would say that the um, Google DeepMind, which used to be was just a merger between Google Brain and, and, and um, DeepMind, is still doing more interesting things than, say, OpenAI is. I think yeah. OpenAI is really just focused on those streetlights and that um, Demis Hassabis, who runs DeepMind, I think has broader intellectual taste and he's he's played his bets in a, a broader way. And I think that right now, all the talk is really about what OpenAI is doing. But if I had to place a long-term bet, I would sooner bet <coughs> on DeepMind because they are considering ideas outside of the mainstream. Can you and give I, us some I, examples of that? Um, for example, they're looking a little bit at neurosymbolic AI, which is something I've always been fond of. And what that oh. means is combining some of the advantages of neural networks, which is what popular now, with some of the advantages of classical AI, in which you have explicit representations of symbolic things, of facts that you can reason over and so forth. Um, that ultimately, we need a marriage between these two traditions in AI. And the, there are at least some people at DeepMind trying to understand that and, and to find new ways of doing that. And I think that's to the good. Whereas I think that OpenAI has taken this one technique that was really developed at Google, um, the, the transformer, and pushed that as hard as possible. And they've certainly gotten a lot of fruit out of that. Um, but I think in the long run, in the voyage towards general intelligence, that you need a much broader set of ideas and the, the deep mind has been better at developing those other than the economic uh incentives are you in a minority or do a lot of people feel like you that are in this field i guess it depends on how you draw the boundaries of yeah right because a lot of people are chasing it because of the money i'm sure so so you know in terms of active research dollars i'm definitely in the minority i think there's a lot of people who have been around in AI for several generations, or, or let's say for decades, rather, um, who look at the current stuff and they're like, this is obviously a wrong turn. Mm. Um, and that includes not only the symbolic AI people who are kind of out of it right now, um, I mean, who are not getting, or is not as popular right now, but also some notable people like Jan LeCun, who's disagreed with me about many things, um, who is a chief science officer at Meta. And um, Jan LeCun is like, you know, this stuff is very interesting, but it really isn't the heart of artificial general intelligence. We need to have cognitive models. We need to um, have deeper reasoning and so forth. Yashua Bengio, the two of them were two of the three people who won the Turing Award a few years ago, um, has also said the same thing. So I think that some of us who have really been around for a long time understand that 
success on the things that we are successful on now doesn't mean we're actually answering the big questions about what intelligence is. Do we need to penetrate the human mind more before we can really do this? Or do we have enough understanding to be able then to try to build models? It's a good question. I, you know, I think we know some things about the human mind that we're not leveraging sufficiently right now, like that human minds do revolve around cognitive models. If you read something, you build a model of what's going on and did what to whom. Um, I think that there's good reason from cognitive development to say that there's a lot built into the human mind, <coughs> whereas these systems are all trying to learn things from scratch. So there's some like clues that nature is giving us that we're not taking very well. Mm. So I think, you know, there are directions we should be following. I think there's also still a lot we don't understand about the human mind. And oh people talk about using the brain, you know, let's copy the brain. We don't want to copy it because it has the problems we talked about before and we don't understand how to copy it. So yeah, I, I wouldn't know have, what that would mean. And, and then what, what about the autonomic system and what about the, what comes out of the body and what about the circumstances of the hematologic flow of whatever else the brain is being exposed to? I mean, my God. Yeah. Or on a different level, like more from where I fit in would be like, we don't actually know how the brain encodes a single sentence, we right. don't know how the brain encodes a single memory. Like we know mm. we have short-term memory. If I say, hang on a second, I'll call you back in three minutes. I don't need to say that a hundred thousand times for you to, you know, form a sufficient memory trace. The only mm -hmm. neuroscience we know about memory is mostly like these things where, you know, you, you condition many trials and yet you have like, you know, one trial memory. And, a lot and we of have, basics we don't understand and we have a working memory we can hold things in mind what, what's that who's doing that we don't really know the biological yeah. basis to yeah, although things. that that uh um woefully sorrowfully gets restricted with age oh my well, god there, there is that too and yet another reason we don't want our ai to suffer any of our foibles we don't want it to you know degenerate what was your name it, again right it, well the word finding thing right that but but i i talked to another uh aging uh neuroscientist and he was saying that the majority of what people complain about when they're age as, as they age when they complain about memory they're not really complaining about memory they're complaining about working memory which is holding something in mind while you do something else and i swear to god i could i could hold three things in mind and do something else now I can just do the something I'm focused on. It's just so frustrating. Steve Martin has this riff about getting older. And he's like, um, put your keys in your left hand. Take a phone call. You, you know you're getting older when you, you hang up the phone call. You don't know what you did. Oh, absolutely. 100%. Uh, so, so back to your original uh, tilt at there being some potential, um, some issues coming our way if, if uh, we don't pay attention. What, what are those things? What, what, scary, what could go wrong? <laughs> I mean, large language models are an amazing technology, but one that can easily be abused as well. So you know, they're almost certainly going to increase our productivity in terms of like, you know, commercial measures of how much stuff gets done per person. Um, they're great for computer programmers. They help programmers program faster. There are lots of things that these systems can do, but they can be misused um, and can also, even when they're not misused, cause problems. So I'll give you some examples of each. On the misuse side, the single biggest concern I have is that the 2024 elections are going to be greatly undermined by probably both sides using these tools to make deep fakes, to make all kinds of new misinformation, um, et cetera. So we have huge problems of misinformation. We have huge problems of defamation where these systems just make stuff up, like invent sexual harassment charges, make up references that don't actually exist and things like that. Um, 
we have problems with cybercrime. So people are already um, or in all kinds of crimes. So people are already, for example, faking voices, um, getting parents to send money to ransom their kids when the kids are not, in fact, kidnapped. Um, we have this new tool. The field has this new tool called AutoGPT that's going to automate many of these processes. We're going to have like AI-powered romance scams, you know, at much greater scale than we've seen before. None of these ideas or or things are necessarily new, but the scale at which yeah, AI I was going to allow remember, them. I started by com- complaining how I was edited and you know, in the and out of context in such a way that made my message completely different than what I was saying, mm. and and that people they love that stuff. They they love. Uh, Turning that, things into, you know, uh, distorted, problematic uh, phenomena. And, and so if you are, let's say, a state-sponsored troll farm, yeah. you suddenly have, it's yeah. like you had a knife before, now you have a submachine gun. Right, right. You don't even have to be a native speaker of English suddenly to make a lot of, you know, convincing misinformation, make many variations on it. Um, and so, you know, we're, we've never seen anything like what we're about to see in terms of the sheer volume and quality of misinformation that's going to head our way. So there are all those kinds of risks. <clears throat> and then there are um, problems of bias, which are already here. And I think actually made worse by large language models, bias on job applications and housing rentals and, and insurance and all of these kinds of things. Can um, you give us an example of that? Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's long been a problem that these AI systems don't really understand our values about the world. And so they mm. perpetuate past biases in all kinds of ways. Mm. Um, they will, um, for example, if you try to have them optimize something in healthcare, um, <clears throat> they may try to figure out which patients cost the least money. Um, and then they wind up um, privileging wealthy white people who can get um, preventative care sooner um, because they know how to work the system better than, than other people do or have better mm-hmm. access the hospitals and so forth. So Gosh, all these things you're mentioning are things that are already in already problems for us. They're just going to amplify things we've already got. Yeah. There's a term amplification in fact. And, and yes, I mean, I'm using the term maybe more broadly than it usually is, but that's exactly right. These tools are force multipliers that, um, you know, bad people can use. And also, you know, some of these cases are inadvertent. So bias um, by these well, in a world where we have that attribution error that we were talking about at the beginning, people think they're using it for good. That's right. They can think they're using it for good and not. And the yeah. systems, um, sometimes people talk about alignment problems, don't necessarily do what we want them to do, which is to say that they're not aligned. So um, you might, for example, start seeing people using large language models to make job decisions. So I'll feed in somebody's uh, <coughs> application and ask, you know, GPT is this good or bad idea to hire the person and nobody's trying to be biased, but there's bias in the systems given the distribution of data and the systems can't actually reason about, you know, equal opportunity and so forth. They're just very blindly following the past data. Um, And so they just perpetuate the past uh, data. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and of course, you know I'm a fan of therapy. I'm a fan of BetterHelp. I've sent family, friends, patients, been very pleased with the professional services there, and I am so tired of people claiming embarrassment or stigma or putting things off to later. It's at your fingertips now with BetterHelp. No more. No more. Time to take care of your brain and mind the way you take care of your body, and of course, I see and know the benefits both as a patient myself and as somebody who helps people in the mental health space. 
If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. All you got to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Drew today to get 10% off your first month. That is BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Drew. Is that, I'm just curious, is that saying something about human cognitive biases? That it's really intrinsic to cognition? The biggest well, I, I should say the sentence a different way. Um, one of the underlying problems is simply that humans over-attribute intelligence to these systems. They mm. trust them too much. Mm. And they're partly designed to do that. They're designed to look like humans. Um, sometimes they're designed to use first-person, type words out slowly so they kind of look human-like. And so we get mm. sucked in and we treat, because they write in this sort of authoritative style, they seem like oracles. Um, I learned a great phrase the other day, um, something like frequently wrong, never in doubt, um, <laughs> I think is is a great phrase to yeah. describe these systems. Like they, they don't it describes a lot of people these days, too. It does describe a lot of people, but it's not you know, we don't want our AI to kind of wholesale what was already a retail problem. Mm, that's for sure. I mean, that's really but that is really what you're pointing at, that that's what's coming our way. We have all these issues and they're just going to be amplified. Exactly. And we don't, you know, we don't have at this point, well, I, I guess I, something I said to the New York Times is um, it's kind of a perfect storm of corporate irresponsibility, widespread deployment of systems that we don't understand, and a complete in the United States lack of governance designed around these problems. And, you know, I've been talking a lot to policymakers um, in Washington. I was just there the last couple of days. And certainly people in Washington are aware that there are problems. They're starting to think about it. But at the moment, we're still kind of flat footed. We're trying to figure out what to do about it. Um, and we don't yet know. And so if you were the king of AI, uh, just give me some sketching. Uh, you know, I'm not going to hold you to it, obviously, but just how would you approach the regulation? Because it seems to me at the core is who decides what misinformation or disinformation is, which is an eternally impossible problem to answer. Uh, and on the other side, what would you do? What tree would you bark up to redesign AI? So I think there's many, many different facets there. There's not a single answer. Um, I'll start with the, on the policy side, as opposed to the research side. Mm. The first thing I would say is a country like the U.S. needs a central AI agency um, that takes responsibility for this whole widespread set, set of flaws, deals with the existing agencies that aren't really built for this, and tries to supervise and do traffic control, make sure that we're covering everything. So for example, we have laws about defamation, but they don't really apply to large-scale misinformation that's deliberately harmful, but it's not undermining a particular person's reputation. Like, there's just gaps in our oh, laws. Even if it is, they don't care. Well, there's that problem too. Um, yeah. So you know, you need somebody who's minding the store, who has the expertise to follow a technology that is rapidly moving. So is I, mean, it, I would, is it I would maybe, make a cabinet secretary. Well, is it is there a way that the legal system could start to close the holes in this? Um, I mean, the existing laws are weak here. So, for example, um, I didn't go into this detail of this law professor who was accused of sexual harassment by ChatGPT. It's not clear that the law, existing laws actually cover that. 
Hmm. Right. You know, it's the system's not doing anything with malice, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not you know, the system doesn't even know what it's doing. Maybe the user, the the manufacturers are kind of recklessly disregarding this weakness that these systems, you know, are prone to error. But you could argue <coughs> they're using the best current technology. And so like the laws, maybe they cover things and maybe they don't. There's actually an argument about whether Section 230 of the um, Communications Act um, which exempts um, like Facebook carriers, yeah. the, the exempts carriers um, from any liability for publishing falsehoods, whether that applies if they actually create them. Um, and a lot of people think they shouldn't, but the law is not actually clear yet. So hmm. there's a lot of places where the existing law is just not built around this. So the legislation <laughs> there could help close some of those holes. The, the, I think I th- so. I think if you, in, in the current environment, it feels to me like if you start talking about a centralized AI authority, people are going to worry about excesses. They are, been... and they should. I yeah. mean, you know, you want to have gentle steering, right? But you don't, you don't want to have no steering. You also don't want to have steering that just um, is what we call regulatory capture, where mm-hmm. you're just making something so that the big companies can be entrenched and keep out smaller companies. Which just... seems like an endemic problem in our government right now. It is, it is an endemic problem in, in every government. I, would, I don't know if we can single out ours. Um, yeah. it, it's a really hard problem. On that point, I've been really urging to have scientists in the loop, not just the companies um, meeting with the governments, but <clears throat> having independence, independent scientists, independent ethicists, and so forth. So that's another facet of what I think we need to do. Is anybody... also... Go ahead. I think I we saying... also... You go ahead. Please, you. Okay, I, I would also call for glo- global AI governance. Mm. I think there's some policies we might want in the whole world. For example, I think AI-generated content should be labeled as that. I think mm. we should just all agree to that. Um, and that would help some with the misinformation problems. Not that hard to do. And I think we should all say, look, we're just not going to live in a world where machines are fooling people constantly. Are there good AI ethicists out there? Who do you, who do you lean on for that? Um, I mean, there are... Lots of people, I think, working on different facets of the problem, ranging from, I really like Carissa Valise, who works on privacy. I like Shannon Valor, is a kind of general AI ethicist. Um, Timnit Gebru is someone who I often disagree with, but who's really made the points well about, you know, including the global south here and the consequence on the global south. Um, What do you mean global south? um, So Africa, for example, you know, tends to get um, Southern Hemisphere. Southern Hemisphere gets yeah. the short end end of the stick. I mean, a lot a lot of this. Why you know people in Kenya end up like you know doing some of the training and getting not, paid nothing for it and not equitably. Um, all kinds of issues is there. So you know different different people have worked on different facets of the problem. Some people have worked on the technical side of how might you get AI systems to actually respect ethical values. Um, Yejin Choi did an interesting. Um, paper on a system called Delphi that I think was unsuccessful, but opened a lot of questions here about how you even get these AI systems to obey those things. Um, there's a lot of people who have looked from different facets at that problem. I feel like you would feel like that's the the the, the direction to go. Am I right on that? When you're talking about barking up the wrong tree? I think that's part of it. I mean, I'll back out and then return to it. Okay. <laughs> I think that what we need is to build AI that can take explicit 
information, whether it's that Elon Musk is still alive or that we don't want machines to harm people and to be able to reason over that explicit knowledge. And I think that's important both for making these systems truthful instead of hallucinating. And it's important for making them moral actors that can't simply be so-called jailbroken into doing all kinds of nonsense. And, you know, there's, I mean, you, you, I'm sure you, you know, obviously I'm not, I'm talking to a, a cognitive psych, scientist, but for the listeners, and the morality has a couple of different sort of planes in which it operates, right? We have cognitive morality and we have sort of moral sensibilities. Is, is cognitive moral, and by the way, some of the most moral people I know don't have good moral sensibilities, but are just absolutely rigid with their, their cognitive moral standards. So it seems to me that a purely logical moral system could could be quite good. Am I right or wrong in that? I mean, I think it's possible in principle. The question that usually comes up is like, who's, whose values are you going to instill in these machines? And I think it's right to raise those questions. Um, but I think people underestimate how much consensus there is around what values you'd want. So for example, nobody wants AI systems to kill us to kill our children to kill our grandchildren like there's actually consensus around that mm. um nobody wants ai systems to arbitrarily redistribute wealth um you know there are lots of things we actually agree on even though you know people are going to disagree for example about um fetuses and abortion and you're never going to get consensus there and, and probably you shouldn't have machines judging these these kind of hot button issues but there's lots of stuff just like everyday life that we mostly agree on that i think Right now, it's actually a technical limitation. Like We agree machines should not harm people, but we just don't know how to build machines that don't harm people. And, and we need some foundational advances in AI to do it. And right now, it's like we're ahead of our skis. Like We know how to deploy AI very widely in the form of chatbots, for example, but we don't know how to make that AI reason ethically. And so we're in a very dangerous moment for AI compared to where we might eventually get where we did have systems that could reason about the consequences of their actions and not do things that they thought were harmful. So when I think about moral reasoning, um, I, I think about people that I, that I know who are very rigid moral reasoners, but even they are not psychopaths. So if you, if you take, in other words, if you take something like the, um, the trolley thing, you know, the trolley experiment, so people, if you've never heard of this, I don't know where you've been, but essentially trolley's going down the track, five people in the trolley. You can pull a lever to divert the track from killing the five people who are about to jump, go off a cliff, but you're going to divert it into one guy. You're going to kill the one guy, save five. Now you're up on a bridge, uh, some big smelly guy next to you. You can push him off the bridge, kill that guy to save the five. Are you going to push him off the bridge? Most people say no, but about something like 20% say they would reasoning strictly that's a strict moral reasoning then the next layer to this is and there are many variations on this but the next easy version is now the guy next to you is your son are you going to push him off now i'm i'm fearful that ai would push the son off at this point right he would not that ai would not really have a way to understand relationships and, and those sensibilities that are bodily based in the human one of the interesting pieces of research around those trolley problems is you can frame them around driverless cars, which I did in New Yorker in 2012. I said, what if you know a school bus was going out of control? Should your driverless car you know, kill you to save 40 children? Mm. And somebody did research after I wrote the New Yorker essay, and the general finding was 
that people want the machines to kind of do the moral calculus and save more people we, as long as it's not their car. So they want <laughs> the, your car, car them to or save their family. people, right? Yeah, or their family, right? They, you yeah. know, if you're a stranger, we'll sacrifice yeah. you to save the 40. But if, if you own the car, you know, then all how do stuff. you, that's the kind of stuff you can't really put Some in of that's AI. really, really hard. I, I think that there's actually like a, there's a whole layer of stuff before that. So, I mean, I did actually introduce this stuff into the AI literature to some extent. Um, the the, the moral sensibility stuff? Well, I took, what I did was I took the trolley problems and applied them to driverless cars and got people to think about them with respect to AI. You go right, you very quickly get into Bertram Russell and hit that quote. Because it, yeah. it's, not, it's not rational. It's not. There is that. But like, let's just put all of that aside for a second. Like most of the time in this world, like every day you need to make moral decisions about like how to treat people as you walk through the airport that are not that deep. And yet the current systems can't really do even that stuff. So like I could actually live with AI systems that just, you know, didn't know what to do with these crazy, but very rare moral dilemmas. If they could kind of get through the world, I mean, I'll give you an example of why I actually care about this. Um, we have what's called a demographic conversion. We're going to have a lot more elderly people than young people in many parts of the world. And it'd be really great if we could build robots that could help people stay at home longer, because mm-hmm. we all know nobody wants to be in a home and, and you know, give yeah. up. And so elder care robots would be great, but you'd really like them to be able to analyze the consequences of their actions and make sure that they're reasonable. And even just for everyday easy stuff, that's not like great moral controversy, but like, you know, should they slam the door on the delivery guy, possibly, you know, amputating his hand? No, like these are not like rocket science, but like we don't actually know how to get current AI to do even the the easy cases. See, it seems like that's this, this is back to the something that I was talking about. I've heard previous artificial intelligence theorists talk about long ago. This human part, this, this sensibility part, this emotional part. Yeah, this, they're, not, uh, they're not in a world context right now. I mean, they are a little bit like sociopaths, right? They can sometimes predict, not always, but how could they be otherwise, right? I mean, you could do better than we're doing. It's not clear that you can fully solve these problems, but you could certainly do better than... I mean, they don't have anxiety. That's a sociopathic trait. They don't differentiate, you know, subtle moral differences. That's sociopathic trait. They have their own view of the world, and that's it. It begs no alternative. And that those are well, all, and all, all true. And the way I was thinking about it is, like, they can talk about things that they don't actually experience in order to fool you. Um, and so... You know, Blake Lemoyne is this guy who was at Google. He got fired from Google who said that Lambda was sentient. Um, and he's an interesting character. I've, I've become friends with him uh, over the last several months. Um, so he, he thought that Google's Lambda was sem- sentient, um, which I disagree with. But he posted these dialogues. And in the dialogues he had with the machines, it would be things like he'd say, like, what do you like to do for fun? And the machine would say, well, I like to play with my friends and family. Only the machine doesn't have any friends and family. Right. And so it's just telling you that it's not really doing it because it wants you to like it, but it is doing it because that's just statistically probable. So it says stuff completely without the kind of affective and personal content in the world. Just in a way, a sociopath would, you know to make you happy be like yeah i like playing with my friends and family so you'll think oh this is a reasonable person whereas yes said i like to skin cats on the weekend you'd be like i'm not gonna hang out with you right it's it's again that's more sociopathic than psychopathic but but it's the same problem 
in, it makes me wonder, am, am I, the, the Turing test, right? Is that you think you're interacting with a human or you feel like you're interacting with yeah. a human? Is that the I, sort of I basic? I hate that test, but it's very okay. famous. But, but, but that was going to be my point. Is, isn't that the wrong way to think about what we're looking at here? Because it's pretty I, I, easy to get somebody duped, isn't it? Yeah, that's actually the whole history of the Turing test. It turns out the easiest way to win the Turing test is, is to lie to people. Um, so this goes back at least to the early 70s. It was a system called Parry. And what it would do is it would parry whatever you say um, by basically seeming like a paranoid person and not answering your question. And then in 2014, there was a system called Eugene Guzman that sort of won a version of the Turing test. And it did it by pretending to be a 13-year-old boy from Odessa. It would just duck to every question. And so, you know, you'd be like... That feels like a 13-year-old boy, (laughs) by the way. Yeah, I mean, it can feel like a 13-year-old boy. Um, But it was an exercise in fooling people. It wasn't really an exercise in intelligence. Right. And what we have found over right. time is, you know, the Turing test was supposed to be a measure of intelligence, but it's really just an endeavor in human gullibility. So like that Eugene Guzman system, it was arguably the first to win a version of the Turing test. It didn't actually teach us anything about how to build AI. We right. don't use any of its techniques nine years later for anything whatsoever. It disappeared, right. but it was, it was good at using a few tricks to fool a person. This is Watkins. Welcome with Bridget Pettisey. I love hearing people's stories of resilience and grit. This is why I created this podcast. We are very excited to welcome Jim Gaffigan, Yasmin Mohammed, Glenn Beck, Tim Dillon, Abigail Schreier, Jeff Garland, Ayan Hirsia Ali, Sam Harris, Heather Hying, Jonah Goldberg, Ben Shapiro, Glenn Greenwald, Sarah Shahi, Colin Quinn. If there's a culture of victimhood, then let's tell stories of grit and survival. Subscribe and listen now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And and so is there some sort of, mm, it's probably just wrong headed to even think about things this way, but some sort of unifying test that lets you know you're going to the right zone now? I don't know. In the 2014, so in 2014, when that other one came out, I wrote a piece called either after the Turing test or beyond the Turing test in the New Yorker. <clears throat> and what I suggested there was that we have what I called a comprehension challenge. So if it's, if a system could, let's say, watch a movie and what's going on, I alluded to this earlier, um, or read a novel and understand what's going on. <clears throat> See, you know, that would impress this, this, is, this is back to those words like understanding and abstraction, though. It feels like- well, it feels so, like- so there I operationalized it as being able to answer arbitrary questions. So Breaking Bad was popular then. I said, if it can say, you know, in this or that episode, this is why Walter White took out um, a hit on Jesse. Then you could say there's some level of understanding. there. It's able to like go from a video and some voices and fill in the gaps and say, these are the motivations. These are the things people are trying to accomplish. Yeah. Um, that would, to me, seem like a real bit of progress to artificial intelligence. And I would accept that even if it wasn't sentient, it didn't have any self-awareness, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if it could fill in those gaps in the way that an ordinary person can, I, I'd be impressed with that. How far are we from that? I don't think we've made any progress in the last nine years, to be honest. <laughs> because they're you, busy over in the other area. We're busy with the other. I mean, uh. you know, now you can, if you have a short enough story and it's similar enough to what's there, then sometimes the systems will get these things right. But if you write... <laughs> you know, a novel or a movie, and it has something unusual about it. These systems are not really going to catch on to that. 
So I think I understand what keeps you up at night, right? That's this amplification process, really. And the fact that nothing's being done to address it and there's no improvement in the road to real AI. Is that a satisfactory summary? I mean, yeah. I mean, it's a couple of different things. I'll just restate it my own words. Please. One is the way in which these can be used as tools for bad actors, amplifying all kinds of things. The other is they're not really intelligent enough to realize they're being used in the service of doing all of these terrible actions. So the combination of the two is pretty bad. So rather than making you king of AI now, just pull out a crystal ball. (laughs) Such fair questions. I like being king better, to be honest, (laughs) but okay. Such fair questions. Where are we in 10 years? What do you imagine? It's really hard to predict 10 years out is the honest truth. Yeah. I I often think about a period in the early 20th century when everybody in town thought that genes were made of a protein. And so they were all hunting to figure out what protein genes were made of. And it was a blind alley because genes are not made of proteins. Mm -hmm. Somebody won a Nobel Prize on the mistaken assumption that they were. And only finally in the 40s did Oswald Avery do an experiment that proved by the process of elimination that they were not proteins. And, you know, it's sort of curious nobody did it earlier. Once he it's also that, curious that I, I know my scientific history. I'm not aware of that history, that, that very particular experiment. Study. I it's, get it. Another book I will recommend is Horace Judson's uh, Eighth Day of Creation, which is a fabulous book about all this. And um, once Avery now. did that experiment, um, what happened next is within a decade, Watson and Crick had figured out the structure of DNA. Within another decade, people had figured out what DNA did. Um, they figured out the the codons, um, the, the translation scheme. So we made really rapid progress once we got over a false background assumption. And for me, what's happening in AI is we have a false background assumption right now, which is that large language models are the royal path to general intelligence. And once we get over that, we may make rapid progress, but it's hard to say when we're going to get over that. Are we going to get over it in the next two years because everybody wants chat GPT search to actually work or are people just going to stick to the tools that they've got because they're making a lot of money? I, yeah, I was going to say, un- unfortunately, <laughs> the economics are going to determine the, the time frame. I suspect. I think, I think you know, they're going to have a big influence on it. Yeah, that's for sure. So let's go to the podcast. So what, what are you doing there? What's happening? What did we learn? How is that going to help solve the problems? It's humans versus mach- humans versus machines. So it's an eight part series. It's only going to be eight parts. And it's really trying to teach people how to think about AI. It starts with a historical perspective. We talk about the rise of IBM Watson, which is what actually got me back into AI after giving up on it for a few decades. Because I was surprised by it. And as a scientist, you know, going back to the cognitive biases, like when I get something wrong, I'm really interested in why mm-hmm, I got it wrong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Watson got me back interested. In the first episode, we have David Ferrucci, who built IBM Watson, and Ken Jennings, who lost to it. And it's a really fascinating story about the rise of Watson. And then the second episode is about how Watson fell apart. They promised it would solve cancer, and it didn't. And so we talked to a lot of doctors and, and AI experts to try to figure out like what went wrong. And it's partly a parable for now, which is it's always easy to get excited by a new technology, but making that technology really work in practice can be very hard. Mm-hmm. And so those first two episodes kind of paint that. Then we talk about driverless cars and what's gone wrong there, why they don't work yet. We talk about um, humor and like, will a machine ever be able to tell a joke? Can it? do that now we, we have to, and that's another thing we have to agree on what that is 
We do. We do. I operationally defined it by using Bob Mankoff, who's the um, person who invented the New Yorker cartoon uh, competition, caption contest, rather. Um, We we look through his eyes a lot. So if Bob thinks it's funny, it's funny. Um, Just that's it. If he thinks there's no definition other than if Bob likes it. (laughs) I mean, I'm half kidding, but no, we didn't try that hard to define it. It's like pornography. We know it when we see it, right? It's quite a thing. I mean, mirth versus astonishment versus all, you know, versus aggression versus group uh, group uh, contagion there's yeah. all these different we, we go into some of that and look at the state of field then um so those four episodes have aired and we will soon have the second batch which will be about misinformation and how it spreads and what ai could do about it and um things like that um we have um i'm blanking on one of the episodes um oh um we talk about jobs and whether whether jobs are going to change or not um, and the last episode we're, we're still working on, but it's it's going to look at the future of AI and how we set policy. And, you know, the fundamental question I think we all face, um, which um, Senator Hawley said very well when I gave Senate testimony a few weeks ago, um, he opened by saying, you know, this could be like the printing press, which has been pretty good for humanity, or it could be like the atomic bomb, which has been really problematic. Um, and, and let's hey, but be careful with that because the printing printing press is really the reason the Protestant Reformation got going, and all the wars that came out of that. Also true, also true. So I mean, in I mean, in interview I actually did just before coming here that will be in the last episode. Brian Christian makes um, exactly that point, and the dynamics of this stuff matter. So printing press net balance is really great. Um, but it, it did cause a lot of problems along the way. And similarly, like people talk about jobs in, in AI, and it could be that on balance over the next 50 years, the number of jobs doesn't change, the net number of jobs. But it could also be that if you're in a society like ours without a strong safety net, that you have a real problem. Because a lot of individuals lose their jobs, um, can't get quickly retrained. Um, you can have a lot of civil unrest, a lot of chaos, um, and a lot of very unhappy people. And so the dynamics of it's not just is AI on net better or worse, but also the dynamics, you know, day by day in individual lives. My experience has been that as my across my lifetime, at least, and that's not to say it's going to continue, but as new technology step in, new jobs emerge around those technologies. The that's net, right. the net is there's a net zero change. Overall. That, that's always been the positive argument, yeah. and yeah. the negative argument, which I like to remind people, is is that and, and you captured it is that past performance doesn't guarantee the right. future. So that's right. the reason it could be different now is because you could have whole professions disappear overnight. And I like to yes. use the example of driverless cars. So driverless cars are way harder to build than most people realize. I started warning in 2016 this project was not going to go well, and it hasn't. Um, but most people thought it was going to go great. And it's taken a long time. It might be another 30 years before we get driverless cars we truly trust in a level five way, which is to say it's like an Uber. You just type in your destination, it takes you there no matter what, um, no matter what the weather, what time of day, et cetera. Um, but when we get there, that's going to have colossal impact on society. A lot of people are going to lose their jobs. Many of them are not going to be quickly retrained into other things that are kind of the new jobs that are available. They're not, not going to become prompt engineers as kind of the AI job du jour. Um, and so, you know, it could be that that speed at which you can percolate the thing, right? The important thing is once you figure out driverless cars, we could have a billion of them, you know, in two years distribute, or well, a hundred million in two years, like things go to move really, really fast. Once we solve this difficult technical problem, and that's going to have profound impact. 
I'm just thinking I'm, I'm ordering my eighth day of creation while, while we see here before it's I forget. very, very good. And you, and you have to tell me in a few minutes, The other, you recommended another book too, and I'm going to send this one into my cart right now. Um, but I just had a thought also when you were talking about the amplification of misinformation and the misinformation liability. What if, just this just occurred to me, I started thinking about the misinformation that I have been subjected to as an individual. That's where you really learn how, how bad the press is and how bad misinformation is when you're the object of the reporting and then the viral whatever goes out. What about using AI? What about mutually assured destruction? What about using AI to amplify the truth in a way that uh, is, is just as powerful? So I think we should build AI to work like communities, uh, sorry, the Twitter's community notes. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yes, feature, I am. What it yeah. does is it marks stuff up as, yeah. you know, it's true or false. And also more interesting, like, like, why is this thing misleading? And I think it's actually a pretty great feature. And its biggest problem is its scale is too small. Mm-hmm. So it only use AI to while. amplify it. We'll so, use AI. <laughs> exactly. So, Maybe, so I'm actually I mean, trying to raise money for a nonprofit that would sponsor projects like that. Um, right. So, so misinformation, it's a huge problem. There's some, you know, there's a lot of questions around it we could get into, but in general, if you could build something like community notes at scale, it'd actually be super helpful, but it's not necessarily something venture capitalists want to um, I understand. Support. I understand. And so I, I think it might have to be a nonprofit effort, but I think we desperately need it right now. Bill Gates, why don't we get his ear? You know what I mean? I mean, he would at least understand it. I've not directly asked him, but Bill, if you're listening, please. So what was the other author you mentioned 45 minutes ago? That was Tim Urban's uh, new book. And I just pulled it up so I could tell you the title. And then my screen closed, but I will tell you. What's our problem? What's our problem? Yeah, what's our problem? Self-help book for societies. Um, It's a beautiful illustrated book that goes into a lot of the cognitive science things from my book, Kluge, that that you liked a long time ago um, and is specifically focused around why we have polarization and things like that. It seems only on uh, audiobook and Kindle. That, is that possible? I, I, I'm saying the same thing. Maybe it's different title. Um, mm. I, I, he sent me a PDF, all full disclosure. Uh-huh. And uh, I can't answer that question, but I believe it's out now. There's a story of us. Does, is that him too? Let's see what that shows. I'm pretty sure that this is the one that I need. Okay. All right, I'll, I'll keep an eye on it. Maybe that's just come out first or something. I'll figure it out. Or maybe it's not out yet this week. Yes, that's what I'm thinking. All right, well, listen, I love talking to you. It's always such a privilege to spend time with you and to sort of think about these things. And this is a whole new area I've never really spoken to you about. And uh, there's that's a lot right. going on. And there's so uh, much. Happy to I, come back anytime. Always enjoy talking to you. I appreciate it very much. And But before anybody, before I invite it back, I need everybody to go listen to Humans versus Machines. You got to do that first. You do that. You like it. Let me know. And I will bring Gary back. How about that? Sounds great. Thanks right. a lot. Gary Marcus, everybody. Thank you so much. We'll see you all next time. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. the biggest blockbusters this summer with Popcorn Summer Movies on Pluto TV. 
Experience nonstop action with the first four Mission Impossible movies and Top Gun. Laugh out loud to comedies like Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, and The Backup Plan. With thousands of free movies, Pluto TV has something for everyone. Available on live TV and on demand. Download Pluto TV on all your favorite devices and start streaming now.